Kara Alloway might be recognized from her Housewives of Toronto stint, but she's also a journalist, radio show host, fashion guru, producer, and now an author. Kara has a book coming out called Most Hated, coming out at the end of May, which is based on her experiences from behind and in front of the camera. Thank you so much for joining me, Kara. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So how's Toronto right now? Toronto's unseasonably warm right now. It's bizarre. It's it's in the 80s. Usually we would be cool and in the mid 50s, but we're unseasonably warm. Patios are open. Everybody's oh, wow. outside. Amazing. Great. There's a, I'm in Florida, <laughs> but there's like a heat wave in New York. It's 85. So everyone seems to be happy at the we're moment. We're getting that too. Yeah. Yeah. So let's get right into it. Talk to me about where you came from and how you got to be in this reality TV world. What Are you from Toronto? I am from Toronto. And actually, it was really strange the way I got involved in reality television. I wanted to produce reality television. I had an idea for a show. And I had always been a storyteller. I'd been a journalist. I wrote for Allure magazine. Then I moved back to Toronto. And as you said, I had a a radio show and I was an editor and then a contributor for magazines. Uh, But I always um, knew I was a storyteller. And I I had this great idea for a reality show that I pitched to a production company. And they said, well, you know, maybe you should be in Housewives of Toronto and that can be like your sizzle. And I can remember thinking, but wait, how is that my sizzle if I'm producing this show and I'm not in the show? But I knew nothing at the time. So I thought, okay, you know, maybe this is like my little door opener. This is what will get me. And then actually it ended up working out that way because after the show wrapped, when I went to L.A. and I got an agent um, to represent me as a producer, it was interesting going to meetings because I would meet film companies that would say, wait a minute, you were a participant in a reality show and now you're going to produce a reality show, which I think for them meant it was a win because I was able to speak to participants and candidates in a language they could understand. Basically, don't worry, I'm not going to sell you down the river. (laughs) I've got your back. I know what your fears are. Right, right. So before you got into that, though, like as a child, did you want to be in the spotlight? I was an incredibly shy child. And somebody said to my mom, if your daughter is this shy, one of the best things you could do for her would be get her involved in commercials, which as like a very shy seven-year-old, that was the worst thing I could imagine. I was the kind of kid that would hide behind my mom's leg. So if you can imagine a commercial audition, they push you into a room where there's a panel of adults behind a table staring at you. And you either have to, you know, eat a cookie or say a line or something. But what I became able to do was I could turn on the switch when necessary. So I could go in the room, turn it on, and then come out and be shy again. So in answer to your question, no, I don't think I always wanted to be in the spotlight. But having been a child actress, I was able to draw upon that experience. And so I knew what was needed to make a good show. I understood the assignment. Right. So funny you bring that up because I haven't actually thought about this in, you know, maybe 40 years. But when I was little, my mother also did the same thing. She put me in classes for commercials and I grew up in Anchorage, Alaska. So it was, I was totally shy. My mother was an actress at the time and she wanted me to follow in her footsteps. And I thought it was so scary. And I would get physically nauseous having to go in those rooms and watch the, see the adults behind the table and read the part they wanted me to read. And I felt so uncomfortable. But later in life, as you know, I got to be someone who was in the spotlight more, I realized I was much better at doing things that had to do with me. Like if I was not acting, 
that's when I was my best. But if I had to read something or act, forget about it. I was, I was completely the worst. But you ask me anything on live TV about something I know, which is, of course, myself or my life or my experiences, then I can talk, you know, on and on and on. But I cannot read anything. Did you have that? So it works. It works though, doesn't it? I I did that actually. I have to confess, I did that with my youngest son, who was also painfully shy. And right. and it worked. And now if someone stops to talk to him, I'm like in the background going, <laughs> You're not gonna get away if you get him started. You're not gonna get away. But um, no, I think for me, I wasn't really comfortable. I was a little bit the opposite. I wasn't really comfortable speaking about myself, but if it was a role I had to play. And in reality, television, you have to be careful of that because they don't want you to act and the audience can tell if you're acting. So it's a, it's a fine line. You need to be able to, how I compare it is for improvisation. Really. The, the producer sets you up in a scene and says, okay, Rachel, you're going to be having lunch with Kara. And it's a little bit like a boxing match because you're in one side of the restaurant and you see me and we know we're doing a scene together, but we're not allowed to talk beforehand. So the adrenaline's rushing. They're miking you up you know, there's going to be a scene, you know, there's going to be drama. You're, you don't know what I have in my pocket. And by the same token, I don't know what you have. Um, we're separated. And then they say, okay, by the end of this conversation, Rachel will invite you to a party. Say yes, go. And so we go into the restaurant and, oh, so it's like improv, but you have to be yourself. And again, you're not acting, you know, I have to respond to things that you lay on the table of the moment. But by the same token, just as an improvisation, you can't say no. If you tell me something, I can't sit there and, you know, look at the camera and go, no, 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 no. She can't talk about that. So it's it's very nerve wracking. It's a very anxious medium to be involved in. I have to tell you that I, I've spoken to a lot of housewife franchise participants, reality television show participants, and there is a great deal of anxiety. It's not for the faint of heart. Right, right. So how did they find you? Actually, I was helping them with the casting. That's a great question. Nobody ever asks me that. I was helping them with the casting because we had a relationship, because I had pitched to them, you know, I really want to do this show. I was involved in a lot of um, charity events. And so I thought, you know, it would be great to have a reality show about charities and we can call it like sweet charity and it'll sort of be like the crazy stuff that happens when you're trying to put on a charitable event. So um, I had brought this to them and they were the ones that said, well, we're not sure this is something we want to do now. So we had remained in touch. So when they came time to cast Toronto Housewives, they came to me and said, can you you know, suggest people? And the funny thing is, I suggested a lot of my organic girlfriends and whatnot. And either they, they felt they didn't have TVQ or my girlfriends went to the interview and said, oh, no, 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 <laughs> not for me. I'm not doing that. So it was interesting when it came time for the first day of filming, I had no idea I knew one individual who was going to be in the cast, but I had no idea who else was going to be in the cast. I knew who wasn't going to be in the cast, but I didn't know who the cast was going to be. So that was also really, you know, walking into this room saying, I thought I knew everyone. I thought I was Mrs. 416. I thought I knew everyone in Toronto. So who is this cast going to be? So talk us through the process of casting. How does that normally work? Well, the first thing you want to look for is you find someone who has good TVQ. So when I'm casting, it's funny. I'm great with, I, I will say to people, send me an iPhone video. And I think that really like startles people because they say, you know, well, I don't have the right lighting and stuff. One of the right. key cast members for my charitable show was a girl who sat in her car with her dog on her lap and a cracked cell phone and just riffed about herself and her life. And she was TV. She was reality TV gold. Every single production company I showed her little tattered iPhone video to said, 
who is this girl? If not for this show, we need her on TV. So I ask, you know, candidate, I, I seek out candidates depending on what the show is or what the parameters. I mean, I've done a, a food show where obviously I'm looking for someone who's in the food industry, that sort of thing. But for this charity show, um, I was looking for event planners. So I, and it was going to be based in Dallas. So I scoped out all the, you know, top and lesser event planners. Cause sometimes you don't want the top line. Like it's interesting with housewives. They don't necessarily want the the top tier in a city, if that makes any sense, because the top tier either has too many skeletons in their closet or too much to lose, or they never signed the participant agreement. So you go down a little, not to say I'm B-list, but whatever. Um, you go down a little. And there, I think, is where you find a little bit more wiggle room, as it were, with a cast. So I, I get these people to send in little iPhone videos. I review them. And you're really looking for TVQ. You're looking for someone who, you know, when you watch American Idol and you see Katy Perry, she has great TVQ. You could watch her all day long. She's funny. She's animated. She's unpredictable. Sort of, mm -hmm. I like to use the expression lightning in a jar, chasing chickens, that kind of vibe. You want right. someone like that. Much easier to say, take it back, trim it down, than to say, give me more energy, give me more energy. So you definitely want someone who has energy. You want someone who is good in an improv, who can think on their feet, who's good in an improv situation. And then it's a lot of, you know, casting out that line and hoping that it's good, hoping that they are, once you do the casting, hoping it is someone that can either be propelled by someone else in the cast or can propel themselves on their own. And are these women usually friends? For housewives, there's usually a connection. Usually, if they're not like a, a one degree of separation, there's like a two degree of separation. So in our case, for our show, I was an acquaintance of one of the cast members who was an acquaintance of another cast member. But the mistake they made, so obviously, depending on what the show is, you're going to be casting it differently. The mistake they made in my particular franchise was they cast three friends. So if you think about it, you're casting three friends. Well, you want to stir up drama. Those three friends are going to operate as a single entity. Nobody yeah. is going to throw anybody else under the bus or anything like that. So it was like they were one entity and then there was the rest of us. Got it. What shows were popular? What Housewives shows were popular when you guys were casting that you guys were kind of going off of? Well, I had I had a couple friends who were on Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, and that was picking up. I wouldn't say it had really met its stride yet when they were casting. Um, but it was definitely picking up. Definitely New York, I would say, was the creme de la creme when they were casting. And do I think they were trying to find like a Bethany type? Yes. Do I think they were trying to find a, you know, there are there are types. I mean, the verbiage they have for it is like the zero Fs character, right? That's what Bethany is. And and that's every show needs that person, the one that will say and do anything. Um but, but when you yeah, say yeah, that, it's, it's interesting that you say that because she didn't start out that way. She was more shy. No. She was reserved. She had no money. Um, she wasn't the typical girl that they cast for that. She was, I mean, was she even married back then? I can't really remember, but maybe she was. Well, I don't think she was. I'm, I'm thinking she was engaged because there is something in some of the housewife participant contract is so crazy because one of the, one of the parameters is that they ask that you have been married, divorced, or engaged. That's like right there, you know, when they're casting, when they're looking for that. But I think Bethany has always been very unfiltered. It's funny. She was a hostess at La Scala in Beverly Hills, and I was a hostess down the street at the Bistro Garden. And so we, I knew who she was. We had friends in common. I was never a direct friend of hers, but we had friends in common. And she was always famous for telling it like it is. You know, she was very, um, an independent thinker. I think she has I, I go into this a little bit 
I, I think she has a very high emotional intelligence, which is something that's so great for a reality television show character. Um, after Before we did our particular franchise, we had to do a psychological assessment. And I was always so curious as to what, you know, they tell you, oh, it's so that uh, you can handle the, the negativity from the trolls on social media. But given the questions and given the scope of the psychological assessment, I knew it was definitely not for that. It's so that production can know what your buttons are, what your triggers are, what your phobias are, and what sets you off, basically. So after the show, I called up the firm that had done it, and I asked if I could see mine. And it was fascinating because the very first line said, Kara has a very high emotional intelligence. And I went, bingo, that's why I was the villain. Because you need that sort of independent thinker, the one with the high emotional intelligence, the one that will not sweep things under the carpet, the one that needs to process what happens. And, you know, I, I'm notorious for that. I drive my husband and my kids nuts. I'm always like, come on, we need to talk about this. We need to talk about what happened. And they're like, oh my gosh. Right. Go, mom. Oh my gosh. Okay. So before you get into um, the creation of your characters, the villain like you, that you just brought up, how did you then go from being in the process of casting to them saying, listen, we really like you for this role? You know, Rachel, I have to tell you, I'm one of those people. I like to try anything once, right? So I, I'm, I consider myself adventurous. I like to visit interesting countries. I like to taste different cuisine. So really and truly, I looked at this initially saying, no, no, I want to produce. And the producers were very driven. They kept coming back to me and coming back to me. And eventually I sort of looked at my husband. He said, don't look at me because I'm a lawyer and I'm not going on this show with you, honey. He ended up coming on with me because I needed an ally. I was like, I need somebody. I'm on an island. But I did look at my husband and I said, maybe I should do this. Maybe this would be fun. Maybe this would open some more doors and and maybe this is something that I need to do before I can get into my next part of storytelling. And he said, okay, you're going to do this. And what were you doing for a living at that time? I was writing. I was a freelance journalist and writer. So I was writing. I was no longer working full-time for Allure magazine after I moved back to Toronto. So, And I had had um, my three kids. My youngest, I think, was 12 at the time. So what was I doing? I was a I was doing a lot of taxi driving around. I was <laughs> cooking a lot of meals. I was deep, deep into the mommy world. But I was also a freelance writer at the time and, and freelancing articles for different publications. So you mentioned your husband's thoughts on it. He said he didn't want to be involved at the beginning. How did your kids feel about it? Same. Not at all. Even the one that was the actor, the the family of origin here was saying, look, we will support you 100%. We wish you the best of luck in this endeavor. They had seen what my friends went through on some of the other franchise. You know, they had seen, they just had a, a really cautious Toronto as a whole is a very conservative city. Not that my kids and husband are all that conservative, but, you know, we tend to be a more cautious kind of group up here in Toronto. Mm -hmm. So they had seen it and they just said, you know, it wasn't for them. My family actually is really private. They're, they're very private. So after I went on the first night, I came home and my poor dear husband was asleep. It was a, a wives only event. And I came home and he was asleep. And I can remember I shook his shoulders. I was like, wake up, wake up, wake up. We have a big problem here. And he was like, what, what, what's going on? And I said, look, I can tell I am alone here. I need you to come on this show with me. I need what I needed was I needed, you know, the buddy, the the, the sidekick to sit on the sofa with me so I could tell my point of view because otherwise I realized, oh, I'm not going to get my point of view out at all. It's going to all be everybody else's interpretation of what I'm thinking and who I am. So I need someone to be able to verbally vomit what I'm thinking too. Sure. 
And so, so did he decide to come on with you? He did. And to to put it in a very harsh way, I was uh, I was the pig in the bacon and egg breakfast and he was the chicken. So he signed a participant <laughs> agreement that would show him in the best possible light. He was there to be my my go-to guy. And then I was there, you know, holds barred. <laughs> so So Talk to me about what it's like to film and then to see it come out on television and and being in the process of knowing what you're doing and saying in a certain event or scene, and then you see it play out on TV. Is it weeks later, months later? Talk to me about that whole process. It's it's months later. So a lot of times you do, you know, you forget, oh, that's right, we did film that. Oh, that's right, we did do that. Uh, A lot of it is the edit. So I can tell you this, from my girlfriends in the other franchise, um, Beverly Hills, New York, Dallas, Orange County, the edit was not the same as mine. My edit was very harsh. And we were filming a scene at one point and I was wearing these really high heels and I was walking into a restaurant and I can remember I was teetering and you know we cut and they said, no, go back and do it again. There was something wrong with the sound or there was something interfering. And I turned to the cameraman and I said, oh my gosh, I'm walking so slow and teetering. I'm going to look like I'm drunk walking in here. And he said, don't worry about it. We'll speed up your walk in the edit. And at that time I stopped and I thought, I've been so careful about what I said, but I never for a minute contemplated the the Franken-biting and the cherry-picking, which I know for a fact does not happen on the other franchise. My my production, they went crazy with the Franken-biting and the cherry-picking, which is, for example, I was having a conversation with a, another cast member at one point, and I said, look, you come after me, I'll stand my own. You come after my kids, and flames will shoot out of my nose. Yeah. The edit had me saying, you come after me. And then there's like this awkward and flames will shoot out of my nose. But watching that back, I, I can't even tell you the anxiety. I heard Meghan Markle say when she was in um, South Africa and they interviewed her, when she did that big trip in the documentary, she said, one of the worst things you can do for a person, and I think that you specifically, Rachel, I'm not looking to rip off band-aids here, but I think you could relate to this. One of the worst things you could do to a person is prevent them from speaking and and telling their story. So when you're watching a reality show back like I was and it's been edited to that extent and you think that's not my story, that's not what I said. Megan said like that was one I can remember she was teary saying this and I I watched and I went I get it. It is the worst. It is the worst feeling to to not give someone their voice to take that away because we all have a voice, but to right. silence that voice is just brutal and to go through that Sorry for the long-winded, overdramatic answer to your question, but no, it was brutal. It's, it's such a great answer. And it's interesting to have them um, show you in a different light or edit you in a different light. Um, also, you know, you can say things or be who you are, but it's really difficult if they take that away from you by editing you in a different light. And the perception is so much different than the reality. And you get so you know, anxious about it because you are the one that goes home at the end of the night and you are a real person, you know? So all these people get obsessed with watching you as the villain or the victim or whatever it is that you are characterized as at in the show, but you have real feelings and a real life. So it really does affect you. And I think people forget that, you know, reality TV may be just for TV, but you are a person that goes home and has real feelings and a real family. And, uh, uh, you know, it affects your, you know, your mental health. Precisely. Oh, it really does. I mean, I was in, when it first aired, I had to snap out of it. I was in some really dark places and, and the, the internet, I mean, I, it, it's bad. I, the things that people would say to me, the horrible things. And I can remember at first I was replying saying, this is a show. It was meant to entertain you. Why are you right. saying these horrible things? But 
Yeah, so, t- so tell me what that was like reading the comments for the first time. Oh, awful. So I was naive and green. I had my Instagram alerts on at first and it was bing, 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 bing. Like, <laughs> I can't even tell you like 30 a second, you know, you're awful, you're horrible. Do you even realize what, you, there were so many that would say, we saw what you said on that show. And I can remember thinking, guys, I was miked with three. And this is what I get into in my book because mm-hmm. one of the girls says, you know, you're, mic- you're wearing a mic pack. There's a boom operator and two cameras in your bathroom. Do you not think I am keenly aware of everything that's coming out of my mouth? Please, you didn't right. catch me saying anything or you didn't catch me in an interview saying anything that I wasn't 100% aware of what I was saying, whether it was for the drama, because I will tell you this on my show, um, there was, it was flatlining a lot. And I realized, as I said, I understood the assignment. I knew what housewives was about and there wasn't a lot of other people willing to bring the drama. So I've said, you know, okay, no problem. I'll bring the drama. So things that were scheduled, for example, a banana boat ride, um, on an inflatable on a lake, you know, the, the producers asked me in an interview, so why did you have the girls on the banana boat? Well, you can't say, because we scheduled that for production. That's not, you don't break that fourth wall. So I, you know, knew that I was going down the road of being a villain. And I said, well, everybody was so bitterly hung over. What better way to get back at them than to take them for a ride on the banana boat? Oh my goodness. If the trolls didn't go, you're an awful person. How could you do that? And I was like, yeah, okay. Right. So how did you get um, characterized as the villain? Was that something you decided to create or they really created for you? No, that was, that was definitely created for me. And again, I think that comes back to the whole emotional intelligence. You know, I, I'm an independent thinker. I have distinct opinions and I'm not afraid to share those opinions. I don't, you know, I'm not one of those people that says everybody has to have my same opinion, but thanks to a heavy hand with an edit and thanks to myself, you know, being someone that, you know, I'm okay chatting and I'm okay talking and I'm okay saying, you know, what I say. I mean, I was, I was great for that purpose. I was, I was their villain from, I'm sure before they even started filming, I'm sure they went. Was that okay for you or did that end up affecting you later in your real life? At first it was not okay because of course everybody, and especially myself, I mean, I had no business being in reality television as a pleaser. I was a pleaser. So that's the last person that should be on a reality television show. And it was interesting because I grew and I learned so much through the experience that after the fact, I was okay with it. And what I mean by that is that I had always thought I was a pleaser because I was, you know, a nice person and I wanted everybody to be happy. But what was revealed to me through the process is, no, there's a lot of vanity tied up in being a pleaser because you want everybody to like you because you want to be liked and that's on you. So you have to be okay. If you're going to call yourself an independent thinker, you have to be okay with not everybody liking you and growing from that. I mean, what I learned about myself in the process was phenomenal. Did I want to be the villain? No. Was I thankful for being the villain? Well, everybody remembers me and all of the press surrounding the show said without Kara, there wasn't a show. Every conversation, there was one time the producers took me out of the scene because I would walk in a room and it would always just be circling around Kara, Kara, Kara. So they took me out of the scene and they had everybody else film and they sat them in a circle and they said, okay, this, and this is like the oldest trick in the book for, you know, trying to get something happening in reality television. Look to the person to your right and say something you love about them and something you hate. Well, this group, I was told by a production member that was there, you know, would look to the right and say, well, I love you because you're beautiful and your heart is so pure, but I hate you because you're so incredibly organized and 
I just wish I could be organized like you. And the production was like shaking their head going, are you kidding? <laughs> We're looking for anything, throw us a bone. And I think, you know, someone was on the phone, bring Kara, send for Kara, we need her. Right. Well, it is so interesting. Like I was there the weekend that they start, Bravo started filming um, the show Southern Charm. I'm friends with some of those guys. So I went down there like, we're filming something. I, I had known Shep for a while. Do you, do you know the show I'm talking about? Yes. So yes, he do. invited me down to come see what he was doing. He's like, we're filming the show. I don't know what's going to happen. And I went down there and I spent the whole weekend with him and the cast. And uh, my friend and I, my girlfriend and I, that I went down with, um, she was, we were both single, I guess. And we were, you know, looking for a fun time. And it was the most boring weekend ever. I mean, even though they're the best looking guys and girls you've ever seen, I kept saying to Shep, I'm like, how are you going to get a show out of this? You guys don't even talk. There's nothing to talk about at these parties you guys keep having. People keep getting drunk and then no one's really talking. This is so dumb. And he's like, yeah, I know it's awful. And then the show came out and it was a total hit. So I was like, who are the people editing this stuff? They're getting great. I don't, they're really creating something out of nothing. I really was shocked. And I mean, I love those guys. After the weekend that I had, I became great friends with all of them and I thought they were great, but I was just like, how are you? going to edit a show like this together. And they really did a good job. So you, it, it's really about the production company, right? Don't you think they're all sort it of different? Really, it definitely is about the production company. It's so funny that you say you were so bored because it is boring. And, and again, I do touch on this in the book, like a lunch, you might sit down to film a lunch and, you know, with the whole cast, for example, and maybe that's going to be five minutes of, of what's captured on film, but you're there for three hours filming the lunch. It's, torture and monotony and you're exhausted by the end of it it's it makes me laugh that you say it's so boring and a lot of it also I think is in the interviews too the way you, you know I know Southern Charm is set up that way as as well as you know the housewives format so the shows that have a little bit of action and then you go back to the interview I think that right. that juxtaposition really creates it but you're absolutely right it's it's a ton in the edit and the person responsible for that is the story editor who gets all of this and then says, okay, how can I weave a story out of all of this footage? And they might just catch maybe something that was said, like whispered off camera, you know, like, oh, I don't like her hair today or something like that. And then they can go, right. boom, let's go with that. Right. They're just waiting for that one moment that they get out of the three hours to create something. Yeah. yeah <laughs> no, I get it. All right. So what? tell me one time that was the best time you had doing the show and one time that was the worst that you regret even being there. Ooh. Probably the best time was I filmed some scenes with my mom, who is crazy, unpredictable. She is like, she's the zero F's character. She's unfiltered. And it's so funny. She like will just say anything and, you know, do anything. So that was a lot of fun. I love that that's a memory I'll always have. We filmed it like this posh club in downtown Toronto. And she was just, you know, being her regular uncanny, unfiltered self. Um and so honest. So that was that was a lot of fun and a great memory. The worst was we filmed a scene uh, where one of the ladies did a traditional, can I speak to you by, you know, would you step aside with me, please? Which is like the biggest housewife cliche. So we step aside and she confronts me and we have this conversation and we don't really resolve it, but we return to the table. And when we return to the table, I look down and there's money on the table. And, and so I'm walking back to my seat and I'm thinking like, what, what's, and so I said, what's, what's the money on the table for? And, uh, the other lady sort of snickered and, you know, really mean girl stuff here, like really mean girl stuff. And they looked around and they said, oh, we were just taking bets. If it got physical, that she'd take you out. 
And I just kind of looked at that and went, ouch, here I am in the cafeteria again, or high school or wherever it is. And, and here's the tribal unit. And here's the girl who's being shunned and gossiped about and slandered about because I don't conform to the way that everybody else thinks. Wow. Ouch. But out of that became my line. Don't bet against Kara Alloway. You'll lose. <laughs> right. So the show had how many seasons? Two? One. It had one, one. season. Um, you know, for whatever reason, the show didn't come back for a second season, I'd like to say, because I said, sorry, this isn't for me. It was an interesting experience, but I'm glad it's finished. <laughs> okay. And so you kind of decided to walk away? Yes, I did. Okay. And did it um, open up any opportunities after the fact for you that you were happy? Huge opportunities. Yes. Huge opportunities, which was great. I was able, as I said, I was able to go to Los Angeles. I got an agent to represent me as a producer. I was able to pitch my show about charities. I got a film company to pick it up. It's in uh, development. (laughs) We shot the sizzle in Dallas and then COVID came. (laughs) And it was a show about event planners in Dallas. So we're back again resuscitating it, which is great, but it's called Dallas Planners Club and it's fun and it's like million dollar listing, but for event planners and it's fun and just the right amount of salt and sugar and a good time. Got it. So did you do more radio after that? No, I didn't. My radio was actually vertically integrated when I was the fashion and beauty editor for a magazine. They, the magazine um, also owned a, a radio station and they asked if I could do a fashion and beauty show, which was so challenging because I had, I think it was three minutes to do a daily fashion and beauty report, which I'm sure you know from being in this business, three minutes is like nothing. So it was fabulous because I got to interview some great designers, Phoebe Philo, Stella McCartney, Zach Posen, Diane von Furstenberg, Oscar de la Renta. It's incredible how many people wanted to come on the radio show. It was really cute. They really were like, oh, a radio show. That's fun. And I had Stella McCartney doing PSAs for me. Like the way, remember Paul McCartney used to kid around when he was a young Beatle. They'd always show him like fooling around and stuff. Well, Stella has that exact same sense of humor. So she would say, this is Stella McCartney and don't miss Cara Alloway. She was just so fun and funny. But it was really interesting to me how many of those great iconic designers were like, yeah, we'll do your radio show. That's fun. Sure. Oh, that's great. And so after you did the housewives, you said you were some, you were friendly with some from other franchises before, but what was the best advice you got from these other housewives? Oh, the best advice was, well, she wasn't a housewife at the time was from my friend, Kathy Hilton, who's been my friend for 30 plus years, mm-hmm. um, who said to me, you listen to me. I said, okay. What? And she said, you tell these people I'm nice, but don't mess with me. And I went, oh okay, I get it. <laughs> All right. I am nice, but don't mess with me. And I, I completely understand that. And I remember when she was having a rough time um, last season on, on her Beverly Hills show, she said, look, hunky dory's nice, but you want to play? We'll play. And I was thinking, oh, that's exactly like the advice you gave me. You know, you can yeah. be a nice person, but I always say as women, we need to recognize you don't have to like the other woman. You don't have to love the other woman, but you got to respect the other woman. So if you've got a problem right. with that, then we're going to have a problem. How do you think she did on the show? Amazing. She was always an incredibly funny person. She's she's like a, a Lucille Ball. She is the funniest person I know. And I remember I was so happy when she was on Housewives because before that, I don't think that people saw that in her. I can remember telling someone that about her and they said, oh, I always think of Kathy Hilton as being so proper. And I said, oh no, she is the biggest practical joker, cut up, 
prank caller, prankster. She is so much like that. And so I think she really got a chance to shine in that way on Housewives. I think people really got to see that side of her, which I was really happy for. So what other reality shows are you watching now? Ooh, um, what do I want? Well, I watch American Idol, which is a reality show. Um, Mm. Of course, I will watch Beverly Hills Housewives. I love Salt Lake City. I think that uh, Shed Media has done such a good job with that. I think it was slow to take off. But then I think Mm. once it did, they did such a great job with that. Same for Dubai. I wasn't a fan for the first two episodes, but I've been watching Real Housewives of Dubai last season and I will watch it again. I think that production company is doing amazing. I think that Alex Baskin does have the golden touch and anything he produces turns to gold. So do I watch Vanderpump Rules? Yes, it's my guilty pleasure. And I don't know why I even have to say it's my guilty pleasure because why, <laughs> having been on reality television, I don't know. It just has such a stigma like, oh, really? My husband leaves the room. He he can't stand it because I cannot believe you are watching that. I'm like, good, get out. I'm doing research for my work. Shut up. <laughs> right, exactly. Wait, speaking of Vanderpump then, what do you think about the whole scandal and the, the fact that they're, I mean- I didn't really watch it before the scandal. I have, of course, tuned in now that the scandal happened and everybody's talking about it. But I'm confused by why it's like such mainstream media news. It was, you know, on the cover of the New York Times, this whole scandal. It seems odd when everybody on that show has a history of cheating on each other. This is true. But I think that the world, and again, this comes back to my book. I think that the world has a fascination with women relating to other women. I think that they have Mm -hmm. always been fascinated. And I think that's why we are drawn to watch Megan versus Kate. I think that's why we're drawn to watch Selena Gomez versus Hailey Bieber. I think that women reacting with other women, and I think that there is a lot of, it's a term I I borrowed from Dr. Phyllis Chesler called internalized misogyny that women express to other women. And I think that the world is fascinated with that whole, how it plays out. And women specifically, I mean, we are relational creatures. We are designed to be relational. And I think that um, we also, you know, I, for me and myself, I am fascinated by seeing women relate to other women and how it works out. And in this book, when I was researching my book, I read a fantastic book by this Dr. Phyllis Chesler. And it's obviously nonfiction. It's a research book. She spent years researching and she is a, a, what she calls herself a second generation feminist. And she said, women told her, no, don't write this book. This is like friendly fire and you can't talk about this. And she said, no, it needs to be discussed. And so her book is called Woman's Inhumanity to Woman. And uh, in it, she talks about how it starts at age eight in the playground. And it's a very tribal setup. And, you know, you need to conform. And the ones who shun the independent thinkers are not the little boys. It's the little girls who go, if you don't fit in with our tribe, you will be shunned. However, little boys, when they have aggressions to work out, they tussle, right? They, they'll wrestle, they'll you know, put someone in a headlock. But little girls were taught, no, you have to be prim and proper. And it's not that myself or Dr. Phyllis Chesler are saying, you know, girls should start to be more physically aggressive. But what's interesting is, So we tend to internalize these aggressions. We don't, we're taught not to deal with them right away. And how do they play out? They play out through gossiping, which, you know, in some cultures, gossip leads to a loss of life, a loss of divorce. I mean, it's, it's awful. If there was, somebody said to me, if there was one thing you could, you know, eliminate from the world right now, what would it be? And I said, a girl's got a dream, but I would make it that gossip was no longer acceptable. I mean, we've, we've eliminated a lot of toxic words from our culture and our dialogue. Wouldn't it be great? If 
starting at a young age, when someone starts to gossip, you just walked away and said, no, no, if I have a problem with someone, I'm going to take it up with them. But anyway, this happens in the, in the playground. So the girl who is the independent thinker is shunned. She's slandered. She's gossiped about because you must conform. And I find that so fascinating that, you know, we, we carry this all through our lives as women. It's how we're raised and, and women like close personal relationships. So girls tend to get a best friend and you want to be so close and you want to spill your secrets with a friend, whereas men are okay with mid-level relationships where, you know, you're a dude, but you're not spilling everything. Well, the problem with a girl having such a tight relationship with another girl is that other girl knows where all the bodies are buried. So right. when that friendship breaks up, that's usually the person that will take you down historically. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I do think it's really interesting that in most scenarios with women, as you're talking about, there becomes a victim, there becomes a villain or some sort of monster. And then the person that everyone wants to hate. And then the person that everybody sides with, there becomes like a herd mentality. And I, what I've noticed is that from being somebody in the public eye that people t have an opinion about, um, you know, people are going with their gut on how they want to feel based on what they're triggered by. Um, you know, if, if they are not liking one person and have such an issue with a scenario, it usually has nothing to do with what that, that person's issue is, right? It, it becomes, um, you know, if I'm angry about some celebrity that I don't know and what they're doing, I mean, I don't even know them. Why would I get so angry? So it, it's more that they're triggered by something going on in their life that they're triggered by. Um, so I had that to take, so true. yeah, I had to take like a good 10 years to really figure that out though, because I had so many people that would read about me, make an opinion, form an opinion without knowing me and dislike me or like me. And, you know, the reality was they didn't know me at all, you know? So, um, it was very difficult for me to have to, um, figure out how to get my own narrative through. So they really knew who they were choosing to like or dislike, because it's fine with me if somebody doesn't like me, but they have to have a reason. They have to know me and have an experience with me. And that's why I chose to go on some reality shows, or that's why I'm choosing to write a book or having a podcast even, because I think it's important for people to give everyone a chance. And like you're saying, I agree, it would be great if there was no gossiping in the world, because it's just, it's usually made up out of complete bullshit and a lack of facts, right? So, um, yeah. And, and a lot of Entirely this, and, and a lot of this reality TV is based on picking a side and wanting somebody to fail and wanting someone to succeed. And it gets really kind of hard to watch sometimes, which is why I think, uh, Housewives of New York ended up taking, you know, a fall off a cliff a little bit. What are your predictions for the Housewives of New York, the new season? I don't know. I think it's going to be fascinating. I think they, I think they did a great job casting it. I, I genuinely, I don't know. I don't know what the TVQ is of, the individuals, but I think it's going to be a resuscitation that was needed. There, there is something to be said of having an older cast. And I discussed this with a journalist once she was talking about, um, British young girls never used to watch the housewives. And then all of a sudden it really caught on and, and we were bantering back and forth. And she said, why do you think it's so popular with the younger generation of girls now? And we landed on the idea that, uh, you know, when you're young, you can be wild and crazy. And then you sort of think, well, eventually I'll, I'll get married. I'll settle down. You know, I'll have a permanent job. I'll do this. And maybe my life won't be so fun and unpredictable anymore. But when you can watch these older women carrying on and <laughs> acting like loonies, you kind right. of go, oh, there's hope. Maybe I can still be crazy and wild even when I'm older. But I'm, I'm, I'm curious, actually. I'm very curious 
to see how New York plays out this season. I really am. And speaking to your point about um, you know, people making opinions on that was one of the individuals that I cast, for lack of a better word, in my book, in my story. I have always been so fascinated with the wives of um, men who are accused of sexual misconduct. So one of my characters is a woman whose husband has been accused of sexual misconduct, and she wants a chance to tell her own narrative. And she struggles within the pages of my book, um, as do a lot of the women, actually, in the pages of my book. They struggle with the, the perceived narrative of what the public, who the public thinks they are. There's one woman who's married to an athlete and she struggles with, you know, how the internet tears her apart and assumes she's just a gold digger. And this woman who is married to the um, individual who's accused of sexual misconduct, I've always been so fascinated with the Annette Lowers and the Georgina Chapmans because I feel like we right. never really got to hear from them. It's funny, when I was doing the research for this, I was really hard pressed to find interviews with those women with the mm -hmm. wives and in talking to you know well-educated girlfriends of mine they had such distinct opinions saying oh she knew about it all the time and if she didn't that's on her and I was like whoa wow, wait a second you've yeah. never met them you don't know them and so it's so interesting for you to say that that we do tend to do that as a society we make an opinion probably as you said based on our own personal experiences, our own personal hurts, our own personal sensitivities, and then that forms and informs our opinion on these people. Right. So you started talking about your book. I want to hear more about it, how you came up with the characters, how you, when you decided to start writing. So I always wanted to write a book about female interactions. I knew even, you know, I come from a family of girls. I have mostly female cousins. I knew I would write a story about female relationships. I just didn't know what the backdrop would be. I thought it might be I'd attended a private girls' school, so I thought maybe it would be something like that. After I did this season of Housewives, I knew I had found my backdrop. And I said, no, it's going to be on a reality television show. The book is less about the reality television show and more about the women interacting with one another, trying to find their narrative, trying to reinvent themselves. So when I came, the first step I had in writing it was I cast, you know, I, who would I want to see on a reality show? And there was no one in the pages of my book who is similar to anyone on a reality show now or who was on a reality show before. So I used sort of my own scope. As I said, you know, I was always fascinated by the Georgina Chapman and Nett Lauer. So I knew I wanted a character like that. I was in a group um, that I actually ran into by accident at my sports club of women who were all married to professional athletes. So it was fascinating to me to sit with them and chat with them. They brought me in because they said, oh, we know you. You were that you were that one that got railroaded on Housewives. You can join our group because we know you need a you need a friend group. Come be with us. They were so sweet. <laughs> so it was interesting to see these women, what they had sacrificed for their families and their husbands. Um, I was fascinated by that and to hear their stories. So one of the characters is married to a professional athlete who was an athlete herself before because a lot of them. Um, have athletic backgrounds themselves, they give that up or they are forced to give it up because of injury. And, and you can't necessarily have two star athletes in a family and what they go through. I mean, there's the sacrifice is just insurmountable. I have another woman, um, another character is a CEO of a sex toy company. Um, another one who is a fading pop star. And then of course I had to have a social influencer in there because actually it's interesting. My social influencer has a sugar daddy and I was listening to your podcast with Rack mm -hmm. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. Oh, Tell me more. Fascinating. I loved <laughs> that. 
So yeah, I, I wanted to have that because I had, you know, I'd, I'd heard a lot of stories. It's, it's far more common than you think a lot more common. Mm-hmm. Actually, there was an article about, uh, about me in one of the British tabloids, because I shared with a journalist, I said, she said, what was the strangest comment you ever got on the internet? And I said, well, I had someone offer to be uh, my sugar daddy. And so first of all, the, the trolls were going sugar daddy, you mean like sugar granddaddy, you're so old. I was like, yeah, yeah, okay, I'm no sugar oh, baby. Yeah. But so, but I said for $5,000 a week, and I laughed and I showed my husband, I said, you got to be kidding. It's going to cost a lot more than that. <laughs> so, and then they, by the, the time you do your and hair and makeup, all, exactly. the, all your clothes, they don't know what they're what talking do you think? about. <laughs> yeah. That's hysterical. So how did you get um, the character for that? Did you know someone in particular? It was informed by a, a lot of my characters were informed by a lot of people. So I didn't know one person in particular, but I had had, I had heard stories of friends of friends, young girls at universities, you know, all sorts of things that would make your hair curl. And as I said, it's a lot more common than you would think. Um, yeah. You know, I, I knew some social influencers who said, well, <laughs> I don't get this lifestyle just from all of the brand support. Okay. Like you need something else right. infusing it there. And I can remember hearing this going, what? Where have I been? Why didn't I know about this? Right. I think so many people, there's like a taboo to it. And so many people uh, are very judgmental about it. But then if they're presented with that opportunity, they're like, oh, well, wait a minute. Let me hear you out for a second. Let me hear what the details are because it's it's actually very common and it helps people get through school. It helps people get through life. And by the way, you, you can have real relationships that way. So people just make it exactly. seem like it's transactional. It, it does not have to be. Um, and, you know, I have plenty of friends that have you know, that kind of arrangement and, you know, an arrangement is anything you want it to be. A marriage is an arrangement, you know, um, any sort of relationship. So I think people have to have a little bit more of an open mind. So, um, I've been reading your book, as I told you, I love it. I think it's great. People should, um, definitely pick up a copy when it comes out at the end of May. Is it, um, available for pre-sale somewhere? It is. It's available right now on amazon.com for pre-sale, barnesandnoble.com. On April 20th, I am doing a talk shop live where I am selling signed copies. And a lot of the characters in my book have signature cocktails. So I'm going to be doing a cocktail hour where I'm making all the signature cocktails that go with oh, them. I great. I'm going to be standing by the end, um, but I'm going to make the signature cocktails. And then we're doing signed copies on Talk Shop Live, April 20th at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. But it's also available for pre-order on Amazon. And as I never knew before I was in the publishing world, pre-sales are everything. They dictate the algorithm to the distributors for carrying the book in bricks and mortar stores. I had never pro- bought a book in a pre-sale before. I always thought, no, I'll wait. I'll grab it when it comes out. Pre-sales are everything. And Jenna Bush Hager is doing a great job of educating the world at large through her book program, going buy the author's book in a pre-sale, please. It really helps. So pre-sale purchases are everything. Most hated on amazon.com. The pink right. book. <laughs> it's beautiful, the cover. And also, what what would you say to people who are looking to write their own book or having a hard time figuring out their characters or how to sit down and really do it? Because I think a lot of people think they need to get a ghostwriter. What What's your advice for, for people wanting to get into publishing? Actually, I would say sit down and, and start doing it. Sit down and start writing it. You don't have to start writing from the beginning. Sit down and start writing from where you are I heard Margaret Atwood interviewed and and someone said, you know, why she wrote her recent book is a book of short stories. And they said, well, why didn't you put more stories in the book? And she said, let me tell you something. If an author put everything they wanted to in a book, it would be this big. So where my book started was this big, where the book ended up was this big. 
again, just like I said, with acting and reality television, it's so much easier to trim down than it is to fluff out and to draw out. So honestly, I would say, you know, if you have a story to tell, and believe me, I am such a big believer that everybody has a story to tell. You have a story to tell. Sit down and start writing where you are. Then you can deal with, do I want to make this a flashback? How am I going to inform the character? You know, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of psychology in writing. You get in the weeds. There were some days because I drew. I, while this book, it's not a calculated tell-all. It is not, you know, informed. It's not what happened to me. It's not, you know, a, a vaguely, acutely veiled tell-all or anything like that of what I experienced. I did draw from some of my own personal emotions and feelings from the show. So there were days I had to get in the weeds with the characters. And if someone says to me, you know, which character is the most like you, I will say Dahlia, the lead character by all means, because she is the one who's incredibly emotionally intelligent. That being said, there's a little bit of Kara in every one of these six ladies. Yes, even the evil villain. I will say I have had some really mean thoughts about people. <laughs> so there's a little bit of me in everything. But my advice for a writer is write. You don't, you don't write by keeping it up here. Someone once said to me, if you want to be an actor, don't say Shakespeare to a flower in the field. Same with writing. Get it done. Get out there. Start writing. Start putting it down. You'll be amazed. Start in the middle. You'll be amazed where you end up. You'll be amazed where you can take it to the beginning. Right. That's great advice. Okay. Where can people um, find you if they want to find you on Instagram or website? Thank you. My Instagram is at Kara Alloway with a K, K-A-R-A Alloway. And uh, my website is karaalloway.com. Awesome. Okay. So everyone should go and pick up a copy of this book. It's so great. I cannot wait to go home and finish it tonight. That's my plan. It's raining here. So that's what I'm going to go do, curl up and read it. So thank you so much for being here with me. And I can't wait to see what your future holds. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed this. And and you've given me a new goal. I'm going to do a handstand by the end of next year. Oh God. I can measure up to you. I'm so impressed with your handstand. By the way, that's all smoke. No, that's all smoke and mirrors too. You just have to get the camera to get that shot, you know, right when you're straight up and then you fall down in the sand. So thank you. It's It's all in the edit. Right. That's right. Okay. Take care. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Misunderstood. I'm your host, Rachel Yucatel. Please be sure to subscribe to the show and give us a five-star rating and review. You can support the show by joining our Patreon at patreon.com slash misunderstood with Rachel Yucatel. Do you have ideas for the show or want to reach out? Email us at info misunderstoodpodcast at gmail.com. That's spelled M-I-S-S understood. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time. Misunderstood.